Section 80 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Veronica Mead. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases. By John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombow. Problematic Cases, Part 2. Walton Dwight. Part 2. In the last will and testament of Colonel Dwight, he is frank enough to state that his only assets were the monies to be derived from the life insurance companies, and that he did not consider himself morally or otherwise required to pay anything to his creditors, from whom he escaped through his bankruptcy proceedings. At the same time, as has heretofore been noted, he bequeathed large sums for a purpose the artifice and significance of which would seem to have been as transparent at the time as it is today. Nor is it any easier at this late day than it was then to reconcile such a conflicting attitude with the ethics and equities which govern the relations and the transactions of honorable men. With a similar flourish and an eye to stage effect, the Grand Seigneur directed a number of trifling sums, from a dollar sixty upwards, to be paid to certain small creditors who were specifically named. This eagerness to pay his petty personal debts seemed to indicate that he expected to die soon. After the payment of the legacies, the will provided that the bulk of the money to be derived from the insurance companies should pass to his wife and son. But, if the wife should not be released from bankruptcy, her share was to go to the son, in order to prevent it being used for the payment of debts. His frame of mind is reflected in the following statement in the will. I have lived to that age, and been subject to such experience, that I have no further ambition for myself beyond leaving my family comfortable and with sufficient means to enable them to live as they were in the habit of living heretofore. And also in making such friendly bequests to those who are endeared to me from association and kindly acts, as will leave pleasant memories behind me when I start on the long journey. From a carefully written discussion of the medical-legal aspects of the case by Dr. Horatio C. Wood of Philadelphia, the following interesting passages are extracted. 58 hours after death, the first autopsy was made on the alleged body of Colonel Dwight. The results obtained were testified to on the part of the defense by Dr. John Swinburne, and are embodied in the first hypothetical question herein presented. A second autopsy was made about five months after death in the presence of various physicians. The results obtained were testified to by Drs. Swinburne, Sherman, and Bridges, and are also embodied, as far as they are of any importance, in the hypothetical question. Before taking up these questions, it seems proper to give a little more in detail the evidence submitted by the defense in regard to two or three points. As to the condition of the heart, Dr. Swinburne testified that the heart was perfectly healthy in every particular except that some little thickening was noticed around the edges of the valves, and that at the second autopsy he carefully examined the coronary artery and found it entirely normal. Dr. Sherman testified that, at the second autopsy, he found the heart remarkably firm and in a good state of preservation, that he had prepared about 150 slides of its walls for microscopical examination and found in each the muscular fiber perfectly normal. He had with him in court a number of these specimens and offered them for examination by any experts who might be called by the plaintiff, but no such examination was made. Dr. Austin Flint, Jr. stated that he had examined a number of these slides and found the heart tissues normal. Dr. H. C. Wood confirmed this condition of the muscle fiber in the slides which he had examined. 
Dr. E.H. Bridges testified that he had examined the heart both macroscopically and microscopically and found it normal. When it was borne in the mind that Colonel Dwight was an athletic man in the prime of his life, 41 years of age, had spent the last months of his life hunting in a hilly country without suffering from shortness of breath or other distress, that the lesions in the body were entirely diverse from those found after death from heart failure, that the heart had emptied itself of blood and ceased its action in systole, that there was no evidence whatsoever at the trial in any way contradicting the statements made by Dr. Swinsburne, Sherman, and Bridges, that the heart, carefully examined macroscopically, appeared to be perfectly normal, and the assertions of Drs. Sherman, Bridges, A. Flint Jr., and H.C. Wood, that the fibers were shown by microscopical examination to have their striae well marked and to be entirely free from degeneration, the question as to the condition of the heart must be considered as settled. Certainly no opinion that death resulted from heart failure could be given upon the evidence furnished at the trial. In regard to the existence of superficial emphysema of the lung, as presented at the first autopsy, Dr. Swinburne testified minutely and positively. Although from some oversight, this testimony was not embodied in the hypothetical question as to the cause of death as given a little later. Such recent, fresh rupture of the upper air vesicles is, in itself, almost sufficient to prove that a man has died from an obstruction to respiration in the throat. To rupture the air vesicles, there must be a great internal pressure, as of forced respiration and prevention of the escape of the air, which then tears open those vesicles whose walls are not closely supported by other vesicles, or by tightly contracting muscles. In regard to the alleged furrow in the neck, Dr. Swinburne testified that it was a heavy indentation in the neck, commencing on the right side near the hyoid bone, and extending upwards and backwards to within, perhaps, an inch or so, and perhaps less, of the center of the posterior part of the neck. On the left side, the same indentation commenced about the upper part of the cricoid cartilage, extended about the same angle upwards and backwards until the indentations came within an inch and a half of meeting. These indentations were full three-eighths of an inch deep, so you could lay your finger right in them and about that in width. I should say full that. At the bottom of the indentation, there was a peculiar appearance, sort of leathery appearance, or had a half-burnt or scorched appearance. Dr. Swinburne further stated that at the second autopsy, this indentation was plainly perceptible, in the same peculiar condition which appeared before at the bottom of the indentation was present, that sort of leathery or hardened feeling. Dr. Sherman testified that, at the second autopsy, he called attention to the deep furrow in the neck and put his finger in it. He stated that the texture of the skin within this furrow had a leathery feeling. It was what Casper calls mummified. That he had seen other cases where death had been the cause by strangulation with a cord and that the furrow had had the same characters as in the other cases. Dr. Bridges testified that the furrow was rounded at the bottom about one-eighth to about a quarter of an inch thick and a quarter to a half an inch broad. The lower or bottom part of the furrow or groove was rounded so that it fitted the convex surface of my little finger that I passed through on each side. The base of the groove was hard and had this appearance that had been described, a parchment look. Mr. Nat B. Freeman testified that he had, during the war, been accustomed to handling corpses and familiarizing himself with their external appearances, that at the second autopsy he examined the furrow, found that it was deep enough for my finger to go partially in it, that the skin at the bottom of the furrow appeared hard. The feeling was a hard feeling, its appearance was similar in appearance to old leather. 
In regard to the cause of death, Dr. Swinburne gave us his firmly settled opinion, based upon personal knowledge of the external internal appearances of the body, that the death had been caused by strangulation with a rope or cord. The position of the other experts was judicial, so far as concerned the cause of death. They gave their opinions upon hypothetical questions which embodied the evidence as to facts which had been given and bore upon the subject. There were several hypothetical questions given, but for want of space, only the one which bore directly upon the main issue as to the cause of death is here inserted. You examine about 58 hours after death, in the middle of November, the body of a man found dead at about 11 p.m., having been last seen alive one hour and a half before and then apparently not in a condition of apprehension of sudden death. You find it to be the body of an unusually large and powerful man, great muscular vigor with a considerable development of firm fat. 41 years of age, you find nothing unusual in the appearance of the face and the general surface of the skin, except the presence of small dark spots indicating a little effusion of blood in the skin of the back and the back of the right arm. A furrow about the sides of the neck nearly meeting in front and back, about the size of the little finger, rounded at the bottom, and the skin involved in the furrow dense and hard, and a surface like parchment, the furrow beginning in front just above the larynx and extending upwards and backwards at an angle of nearly 45 degrees, the brain and membranes perfectly natural and healthy, except a clot of blood on the surface on one side near the top of the head, the clot being evidently of very recent origin, but not sufficient in itself to produce death. The lungs deeply congested with dark liquid blood, but presenting no evidence of inflammation. A few small fibrous nodules and the bronchial tubes and windpipe deeply congested and filled with bloody mucus. The heart and the blood vessels, including the valves of the heart and the vessels supplying the blood to the substance of the heart, absolutely healthy and natural in size and in every other regard, excepting a slight unimportant thickening of some of the valves. The cavities of the heart containing a very small quantity of dark blood. The liver, spleen, and kidneys absolutely natural and healthy, except that they, especially the kidneys, are deeply congested with blood and of natural size and weight, a small quantity of undigested food in the stomach. The mucous membrane of the stomach and intestines congested and a small area of apparent inflammation about the size of a dollar in the stomach, finding all the organs in the condition stated and the furrow made as described above. What, in your opinion, was the immediate cause of death? To this, Dr. Wood answered, the death could only have been produced by strangulation with a cord. After the cross-examination of Dr. Wood, experts were called, one after the other, until the court refused to hear any more. In this way, Drs. Porter, Sherman, Bridges, Avery, Lee, and Hand, the latter three gentlemen being practicing physicians and coroners, or ex-coroners, of Chenango County, New York, were allowed to answer the hypothetical question, and all agreed with the answer given by Dr. Wood. The only evidence offered by the plaintiff bearing upon the medical-legal facts in the case was, first, in regard to the two alleged chills occurring during his illness, the last one a week previous to his death. The only evidence given concerning these attacks was that of Mrs. Bessie MacDonald and Mr. Francis Down. It was so indefinite and would require so much space for its recital here that the reader is referred to the book of corrected evidence. From it, it is impossible to state, with any degree of positiveness, what the nature of the attacks was. It is not probable that they were malaria. For in the first attack, there was no fever, and in the second attack, the fever lasted for perhaps half an hour and the chief symptom was abdominal pain. The counsel for the plaintiffs offered to prove the symptoms and nature of the sickness of Colonel Dwight and the cause of his death 
by doctors Orton and Burr, who attended Colonel Dwight in his last illness, and were each of them on the witness stand. According to the law of the state of New York, no physician is allowed to testify concerning a patient, or to give information which has been imparted to him by a patient, unless the latter publicly gives his consent. And when the defense, in an early stage of the trial, sought to put Dr. Doan on the stand to prove that Colonel Dwight's hemorrhage came from the lungs, they were debarred under the statute. The counsel for the plaintiffs contended that the right of waiver passes to the executors of a dead man, but on the part of the defendant, such interpretation of the law was strenuously resisted. Many hours were spent in legal argument, but the court finally decided in favor of the plaintiffs and permitted doctors Orton and Burr to testify as to their knowledge of the sickness of Colonel Dwight and the causes of his death. When, however, this right was granted, the counsel for the plaintiffs did not exercise it, and neither Dr. Orton nor Dr. Burr was asked a single question concerning the symptoms of Colonel Dwight's alleged last illness or the causes of his death. Under these circumstances, it seems impossible for a professional man to attach importance to the statements made by persons without medical knowledge concerning the symptoms of the alleged illness. There are no important data other than those furnished in the evidence for the defense by Dr. Porter, even for deciding whether the sickness was real or feigned. There is certainly no proof that the alleged chills were not produced by overdoses of a depressing vegetable poison, and the gastric symptoms by overdoses of arsenic, both of which drugs were in Colonel Dwight's possession and under his personal control. End of section 80